that night the city burnt, and the mother church of the city burnt with her. And yet the tower and the spire still stand, soaring to the sky, and I feel that's an emblem of the eternal majesty and love of God. Greetings. You are tuned into the Miserable Offenders podcast. Pull up a chair and join the conversation as we seek answers to life's big questions, drawing wisdom from the well of traditional Anglican theology. This is a production of the North American Anglican. Welcome to the Miserable Offenders. This is Deacon Andrew Brazier, and I'm joined by my guest host, Father Isaac Rayberg. Father Isaac, hello, Andrew. Good to uh, good to be here again, and this is a first. Um, you and I, and no Jesse. Uh, please be praying for Jesse. He's a bit under the weather right now, but we wanted to uh, bring you the miserable offenders anyway. Yes, absolutely. And uh, you know, we're both on the show, so uh, the rumors can be dispelled that in reality, uh, Father Andrew, Father Andrew, I'm promoting myself. That Deacon Andrew <laughs> and Father Isaac were just one person doing two different voices. Actually, no. We uh, are two separate people. We just couldn't get our act together to have all three visible offenders uh, for quite some time. For a long but, time, uh, yeah. It's true. So instead, we just lost Jesse this time. But but glad to, to have you on here, Father Isaac, and be able to do an episode with you. Absolutely. And we are continuing in um, Peter Toon's Knowing God in the Liturgy. Yes, it's been fantastic. It's a great episode from... Uh, the last time uh, we dropped one, it's been a little while, but I enjoyed listening uh, to Jesse and yourself uh, discuss the uh, past section, which if you're reading along with us, uh, we're at the top of page 8 if you have the PDF version of this. If you're in uh, New Scriptorium, that's newscriptorium.com, and if you're reading it online like I am, it's underneath the section called Shaky Foundation. And we're specifically on the paragraph from the middle of that section where it begins with further changes. So, uh, Father Isaac, uh, I'm more than happy to go ahead and, and read the first paragraph and just kind of alternate back and forth. Yeah, let's jump right on in. All right. All right. Further changes are made later in the Apostles' Creed when the, quote, descent into hell, quote, close quote, is made into another less important journey, quote, a descent to the dead, close quote. And the adjective, quote, almighty, close quote, which follows right hand of the Father, is omitted. Then serious changes are made to the translation of the Nicene Creed, as that is printed in Rite 2 of the Eucharist, and taken from the International Commission on Liturgical Texts. I urge my readers to compare the old translation, I believe, with the new one, we believe, in Rites 1 and 2. There are so many significant changes, and it is inappropriate to examine them all here. I simply note that to say, we believe, is not the same as saying, I believe. We are there together at the Holy Communion of the Body, or excuse me, we are there together at the Holy Communion as the Body of Christ, and each believer who is present is a member of that body. Thus, each of us has to respond to the God who has revealed and given himself to us. Therefore, the right response is, Lord, I believe. Though the members of the Council of Nicaea composed the creed and said together against heretics, we, as a body standing together, believe, they each confess the same faith in the Eucharist in personal terms. I believe. 
as the ancient liturgies of St. Basil and St. Chrysostom show. Well, Canon Isaac, as a liturgical scholar, I'd like to defer it to you first just to get your take on the change in the language from I believe in the classic prayer book tradition to we believe when it comes to the creeds. Yeah, my, my understanding is that there really was by the um, that international um, commission um, an attempt at getting back to the more exact language of the creed as as it was stated in the council. Of course, they don't drop the filioque when they do that. <laughs> So, I mean, there's a, there's a little bit of um, speaking out of both sides of their mouths, but that that's always been what I understood to be the rationale was getting back to that creedal language. Um, though I, I do agree with Dr. Toon that it's not quite the same thing. Um, we believe it and I believe, and, you know, and I wasn't quite sure. I couldn't remember how it was in the Greek liturgies of St. Mm-hmm. Basil and St. Chrysostom, but I do know that in the Latin West, it was always credo, I believe. Um, and if you have a copy of the 1940 hymnal, when you find those settings for the creed, those musical settings, it's titled Credo. I mean, they, they continue using the Latin title uh, for the creed. That's a great point. And then I'll pick on you some more as a liturgical scholar in the room. On the, uh, the changing from the descent into hell to descent to the dead. Uh, I'll say real quick, like, personally, I... I didn't find that as objectionable. It really kind of fleshes out to me, especially when I was a layman, uh, as to you know, what is this place that Christ ascends to on Holy Saturday. But I'm interested to know what your take is on that change. Yeah, I think um, that that's an area where I probably would quibble with Dr. Toon a little bit um, personally. Um, you find, you'll find in the 1928 prayer book, for example, there's this rubric right before the creed in um, morning and evening prayer that says um, then shall be said the apostles creed by the minister and the people standing and any churches may instead of the words he descended into hell use the words he went into the place of departed spirits which are considered as words of the same meaning in the creed um, and i'm not sure when that rubric was if, if it was new for 28 um but we have had a had a shift in the meaning of the word hell in English. Uh, you know, it, it's what it's not saying in the Apostles Creed is that he um, descended to suffer the fires of damnation for us. It, it, it's not yeah. saying that. And, and you'll find sometimes in like um, kind of televangelist, you know, style charismatic circles, they'll say that, yeah, he had to descend into hell so that he could suffer our damnation for us and complete the atonement. But theologically, that's just problematic because on the cross, it is finished. Absolutely, and that's well said. And I have to confess, I'd forgotten about that rubric in the 1928 prayer book. Uh, I have to say that you know, I recite the Apostles' Creed in the uh, in the old manner. Uh, so I say, you know, descend into hell. Yeah, me too. But yeah, and and I prefer it that way. That's how we even do it uh, when we, we say the creed uh, in my parish. But at the same time, as a layman, I remember distinctly, you know, feeling more at peace understanding that distinction, that the English use of the word hell meant the same as Sheol, the place of the dead, right. uh, in, in Hebrew. And um, my Hebrew is not good, so if I'm mispronouncing Sheol, it's on me. But uh, <laughs> Close enough for government work. Close enough for Protestant go. work. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, don't get us in trouble now. (laughs) 
but uh, but yeah, I, I do think that uh, you know this is one that I would also quibble with uh, Doctor Tune. And as the listeners can tell, I've been very much on Doctor Tune's side, but this is one where uh, I see it as a, a reasonable uh, change in language to make sure that it's clear. And uh, while we were talking about uh, the descent, you know, this is one that's always made the more, uh, I guess, highly reformed, more uh, super reformed in our midst, a little bit more uh, uncomfortable right. about having it there. But uh, I do want to slightly digress and point out that in the 42 Articles of Religion, uh, which Cramner first issued before they were trimmed down into the 39 uh, Articles of Religion, in the original article number three, in the 42 articles, there's a unique uh, article called Of the Going Down of Christ into Hell. And I'll quote this. Now, granted, this article was taken out, so it's not one of the formularies, but it gives you the line of thought of what was going through the, the one of the chief English reformers. And it says, quote, As Christ died and was buried for us, so also it is to be believed that he went down into hell. The body laid in the sepulchre until the resurrection, but his ghost departing from him was with the ghosts that were in prison or in hell, and did preach to the same as the place of St. Peter does testify. And yeah, that's so a the, lot more robust than it became later, yeah? It, it's true, and uh, I like how Cramner originally cited to uh, St. Peter's uh, epistle uh, where he mentions Christ preaching to the uh, departed spirits. And, uh, you know, it's October, so it's only appropriate that we, we mention ghosts. <laughs> that's uh, right. I'll throw that in there, too. That's <laughs> of right. Of course, meaning the spirits, the soul of, of those who had died. But uh, I digress a little bit there. But, well, but that that's is, a good that digression because that, yeah. that's a passage that does get, you know, um, it, it, when you talk to um, interpreters in your, in your study Bibles and that sort of thing, um, it does get get argued over, but but we do see in the in the fathers that they generally looked at that passage as as Christ's descent to the dead, Christ, Christ the harrowing of hell, as the um, the old icon is called. It is true. My favorite icon. Uh, it's one of my favorites far. too. Oh, it, like it nearly brings tear to my eyes just thinking about it right now. Of Christ, yeah. if you haven't seen it, listener, uh, Google it. The harrowing of hell. Christ is pulling out of the tombs, Adam and Eve. Um, as he's being raised from the dead and, uh, and raising them out of out of hell, out of Sheol, out of the place of the dead. Um, we actually spoke about this in a Bible study, a teen Bible study I did earlier today, and they were asking me about, you know, what does this mean about Christ going into hell? So I had to go into this discussion of of what it meant originally and uh, and why the contemporary version, uh, like the one in the 2019 ACNA prayer book. Uh, discusses the place of the dead, uh, and I was telling them how I was raised United Methodist, and the United Methodists—I don't know how far this goes back—but they actually dropped that line in the Apostles' Creed. So oh, interesting. Proceeds. Yeah, it was something that I did not grow up with, so I distinctly remember I might have been in a Presbyterian service, or maybe it was at an Anglican service when I first heard "descended into hell" and thought, "Wait a second, what?" <laughs> <laughs> but it's biblical. It's biblical, people. So. One of my favorite um, things to read, usually I like to read this on Holy Saturday, is, um, oh, I, I think it's in the Gospel of Nicodemus. So it's one of those um, apocryphal Gospels. I think I think it's a, a third or fourth century work, but it's a very fanciful but very cool account of um, the uh, the Sanhedrin interviewing Simeon, who was who in the in the story 
is one of the dead that was raised and he hasn't gone on to his final reward, but he was raised during the harrowing of hell and he stuck around just to bear witness. And it, you know, you have, um, you know, Hades and Satan arguing about whose fault it is that they let Christ do this. <laughs> you know, why didn't you see this coming? You know, kind of stuff <laughs> as they're, as they're losing all of their spoil. It's a really neat story. <laughs> that is too good. I'm gonna have to look that up. That's great. Yeah, it's, it's uh, you you can you can find it online in some of you know the various um, uh, uh, anti Nicene Fathers. I think I think it's like number the last volume of the anti Nicene Fathers, the old Shaft collection. Yeah, yeah, that is excellent. That's well, the cool. only other thing I'll pick on you about is uh, you you hear Doctor Toon pointing out that the adjective Almighty uh, following right hand of the Father is omitted. And that is one that perturbs me. Uh, but what about you? You know, I, I hadn't interacted with the the modern Apostles' Creed enough to real to notice that. Yeah. Um. So that I, I had forgotten that that was the case. Um. You know, and it's very interesting. I mean, you, you just you, you kind of get to a point where some of these things just become memorized, um, mm-hmm. and and it becomes a jar when you do it. I, I was I was at a Roman. Um, Eucharist uh, with with some family a few weeks ago, yeah, and um, they the priest decided to use the Apostles' Creed rather than the Nicene Creed in Mass, which which you know as a as a budding liturgist drives me nuts to begin with. But <laughs> and, I, and I think I was so kind of thrown off by his choice to use the Apostles' Creed in the Eucharist <laughs> that, that, that I didn't even notice the other stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I wonder like, I wonder if they dropped that in the international version or did the 1979 committee pick and choose on what aspects they uh, incorporated from the international commission. That's something we'll have to, to look up another day. But, yeah, uh, see how the 2019 um, addressed it. Cause I don't, I don't recall that either. Now you got me reaching over for my 2019 because I'm yeah. curious. Mine's uh, back at what... the office. This is this is one of the first first times I'm recording not at my office. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I have to admit that, uh, yeah, on the 2019, like one of my slight criticisms is that they only have the contemporary version of the Apostles' Creed. They don't have they have both the uh, the classic version of the uh, Our Father of Lord's yeah. Prayer and the uh, uh, updated one. But here we go. The Apostles' Creed. Believe in God, the Father Almighty. Let's see the right hand Father. So yeah, it looks like it looks like it retains it here. Hmm. So they must have reinserted it, which makes sense. That was the the philosophy of the 2019 uh, task force uh, that created this prayer book was to try to conform it more in line with the uh, classic prayer book tradition. So it appears that mission accomplished uh there by reinserting almighty yeah definitely excellent well shall i take up the next paragraph here oh actually point of clarification no it they did not oh it says and is seated at the right hand of the father so huh they did not put right hand of the father almighty and and i wonder if that's that's an issue with the original latin or an issue with going to that international creedal standard um that, that so many folks have, have gone to. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah, that, yeah, that International Commission on Liturgical Texts. Yeah. Well, I've quibbled enough about that. I was curious since I had the 2019 yeah. right next to me. 
I'm I'm glad you did because like I said, yeah, I don't I didn't I didn't bring that today, unfortunately. So, all right. Um, well, I'll pick up the next paragraph then. Uh, uh, thirdly, there is a definite change in the doctrine and use of the Bible. Take, for example, the translation of Psalms 1-1 and 51-6 in the Psalter of the 28, 1928 and 1962 on the one hand, and that of the 1979 and 1985 on the other. In 1-1, the original speaks of the blessed man, male and singular. This is faithfully translated by the old Psalter and by the Revised Standard Version and other versions of the Bible. But in the American 1979 and the Canadian 1985 Psalters, which are virtually identical, we have a third person neuter, happy are they. To make matters worse, there is no note anywhere in the American 1979 Psalter to let the faithful know that they have been given an inclusivist translation, which is informed by the ideology of anti-sexism. In contrast, the Canadian Psalter does have a preface which recognizes the inclusivist nature of the translation and allows the use of other versions. That's definitely one of those big issues that comes up when um, talking about the liturgical revision. Psalm 1-1 almost always comes up. And um, I'm I'm very that's one of the one of the areas again where I am very happy with the with the 2019. Um, the Psalter was a really neat project, the revised Coverdale Psalter, and um, they sought to strike a balance between um, the uh, kind of gender neutral when we're speaking of of, of humanity as a whole. Which, which nowadays it is kind of archaic to, um, you know, speak of man encompassing man, men and women. Um, I don't, I don't think it should be archaic, but it's seen that way by a lot of folks. Yes. And so they sought to kind of find a balance, and the way that the um, the folks for the 2019 did it is that they a they compared a whole bunch of different versions. They compared the Coverdale. As in the 1662, they did compare the 79. They compared that revision that um, Toon mentions earlier, that um, Lewis, C.S. Lewis, and um, oh gosh, who was uh, other? Eliot. Uh, yes, T.S. Eliot. Yeah. Yes, um, and some other and some other some other translation. I forget what what they what else they compared, but whenever whenever it was um, messianic in nature, like Psalm one one, they made sure to retain the male singular and if it messed up the poetry to 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 change it to a more um kind of generic third person plural which which is a terrible way of doing that linguistically but that's the way we speak these days unfortunately but when it yep. messed up the poetry they 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 again retained the um the uh, single the male singular in those in those cases Yes, that's a great point. There's really nothing more I can add there except that when I first uh, saw the uh, Psalter for the 2019 uh, ACNA prayer book, I went straight to Psalm 1 to see mm -hmm. what were they going to go with. I saw, blessed is the man. And I said, praise God. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, it was one of those things that with the Psalter, um, it, it took me quite some time, um, well into when I was in my 20s, to finally come you know to, to listen or hear a sermon that made the point that 
the Psalter is not only the, the hymn book for the Old Testament and for the early church, but it is prophetic and starts out with Psalm 1-1, blessed is the man, and yeah. it's talking about one man, Jesus Christ. And I remember as a young 20-something having a, uh, a bit of a, you know, explosion in my mind as I just kind of grasped that, wow, you know, here we are, prophecy in the Psalms, and uh, which only makes you know, sense that you go deeper and deeper into the book of Psalms and how prophetic it is about our Lord and Savior. And for crying out loud, he, he quotes it uh, on the cross, uh, quotes yeah. the Psalter uh, from the cross, pointing to himself and making the point that this is about me. Uh, these words of old are foretelling the Messiah. I, I've, I've probably said this on the podcast before, because I say it all the time. This has kind of become <laughs> kind of a little, <laughs> little bit of a mantra for me. I'm, I'm turning in. I, I'm, now that I'm a dad, I'm turning into a dad. I have three stories, and I repeat them again and again and again. Uh, <laughs> That's two more stories than I have. So That's right. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, I, I've, I found that monthly, or at least the attempt at monthly recitation of the Psalter, um, according to the way the prayer book has it divided, um, to, just to be the the biggest thing for my faith it's just been the biggest boon um over the last over my adult life really and and a lot of it is that what you just said there andrew um yeah it's, it's huge it's huge I, I can't i can't recommend that more and you know i find i find myself you know, I'm, I'm reading a, a book um right now and I'll, I'll be reviewing it for our um for the for the blog for the north american anglican as soon as i'm done Great. finishing it but um yeah uh, written by a um, friend of mine and a contributor to the blog, uh, John Leinberger, about um, meeting God in in the Bible and your Bible reading and in, in quiet time. Really neat book. But um, as I as I read it and as I he- listen, talk to my evangelical friends, kind of generic evangelicals, you know, half I'm, half the time, I'm like, gosh, if y'all would just use the Psalter, <laughs> you know, yeah. use it, yeah. use it systematically. A lot of the reinventing of the wheel that 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 just happens in evangelical discipleship would not be necessary. It's an interesting take. I'd never thought about that. You make a good point, and I have to say that during my times uh, as an evangelical, that I never really heard a, a sermon series on the Psalms. You know, every now and then they would get name dropped. You know, generally during Holy Week or as we got closer to Easter um, for some of the key Psalms, but never just like a series on let's just be formed by the psalms and uh there's a lot there to take in the older i get the, the more i appreciate the psalms and i feel sympathy uh with the writers especially those that, that cry out in distress and there's something just you know gruesomely realistic when you have psalms talking about vengeance talking about yeah. you know even revenge on on the babies of the enemies you know that, that israel is facing because of what they had suffered at, at the hands of their enemies and seeing that our our scriptures are not scared of, of being very open uh even when it's ripping off uh, a bandage from a very sore wound and crying out to god uh in the most desperate times and uh it's just so utterly human while also being so wonderfully divine and pointing forward to the first coming and second coming of uh, Christ. Do, do you ever get to um, sing or chant them in, in, in the way you y'all do it at, at your parish or um, in your private yeah. devotions? You know, my grandmother uh, 
once told me, if you can't sing good, sing loud. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> which uh, my mission can very much attest to, because uh, I sing loud to try to get everyone to, to also sing. Uh, <laughs> so to answer your question, we, uh, uh, I want to get to a point to chant them in our mission. Uh, we're not anywhere near there yet, but I just discovered, actually, for any listeners who are in like the Birmingham area, uh, Birmingham, Alabama area. Uh, Beast and Divinity School just found out they've got an Anglican study program. I knew that, but mm-hmm. a, a group of Anglican uh, seminarians are doing a song evening song. Oh, beautiful! And uh, at Thursdays at four o'clock, I'll, I'll put the plug in there. But uh, if if anyone's curious about it, reach out to me because I just found out about it, and I'm going to go there and start listening to it. So I, I, I attempt to do chant. Father Eyes asked me to ramble about this for so long, but I attempt to do chant on my own to get better at it because yeah. I cannot sing, but the wonders of chanting is if you can learn it you don't have to sing well in order right. to chant well and uh, much less it's just beautiful it's gorgeous and what we do is since we have a uh, we don't have like a full-time uh, pianist you know we're just a small mission no full choir or anything we do have uh, a kind uh, lady who uh, has, has been a pianist before at a church and whenever she can she volunteers but on the days where she can't play piano I'll use a classic uh, Bluetooth speaker and then go to uh, YouTube and pull uh, chanted psalms from the great uh, choirs uh, in England, and uh, everyone loves, uh, you know, even someone who came from the lowest, you know, uh, church background, Pentecostal, you just hear the chanted psalms, you know. That's uh, neat. And it's just, it, it gets you. I don't know what it is about it, but it utterly cuts to your core, and uh, we typically play those. Uh, during uh, the actual reception, the distribution of the elements. Uh, As everyone comes forward, I'll play that from the Bluetooth speaker of doing a couple of psalms. And uh, it's very uh, sobering, and yet very much lifts you up uh, into the heavenly course. Yeah, that's that's really neat. And yeah, it it took me, I mean, I, I am pretty musical, but I'd say... You know, it's it's it, there's a learning curve to to chant, and it probably took me about um, three cycles through to really kind of trying to get at it at least a little bit every day. Yeah, to really get it in you or in me anyway. And um, but but yeah, it's 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 just it's one of those things that now I I sometimes I'll see a quote like at Hobby Lobby. <laughs> From the Psalms, and and I and I, I hear the tune. Right yeah, there. yeah. Why well, I hear the tune in my head, you know, yeah. that, that sort of thing. I, I pulled up. Um, that was the first thing I did when I got the ACNA the 2019. Is I opened up the Psalter to see is is it chantable? And oh yes, it is. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it it is. Uh, we, we recently had the residential tutorial, which is like a liturgics practicum for the uh, uh, jurisdiction, the armed forces, and chaplaincy. We always have it uh, at my mission uh, parish because we're the headquarters for the jurisdiction. And to have so many men, you know, and, uh, and one woman, we had one uh, deacon uh, who was there, at chanting uh, parts of uh, the morning prayer, daily office, and doing the song. Um, it's just amazing. It's fantastic. And uh, we had a quick kind of like, you know, two-minute tutorial on how to do chant and then engaged with it. And sure enough, even after the very brief tutorial we had, people were able to catch on uh, pretty quickly. But I'm curious, you know, Ken and Isaac, it, for for those of us who are, who are like myself, 
I, I can't read music. You know, I'm not musically talented. I use Cradle of Prayer uh, mm -hmm. to try to learn the tunes. But do you have any other suggestions on trying to learn Anglican chant for like a listener out there? Um, I think I think Cradle of Prayer is probably um, going to be one of your best. Um, so they're they're singing the canticles um, more than more than anything else. And I wish they they were singing more um, than the canticles, but but the, the, yeah, those canticles do use it is that Anglican chant, so that that even though it's just the one the one lady the cantor um, uh, doing the melody line, it's still that four part Anglican chant. That's where she's getting it from in the 1940 hymnal, and um, which is very similar to to plain chant, and that's that's what I what I do is yeah. plain chant. Um, in some ways, plain chant is a little bit simpler, but in other ways, it's a little bit more complex. Um, if you have any foundation music at all, picking up the St. Dunstan's Plain Song Psalter um, works. That, that's, that's what I did. There's a bit of a learning curve because it's a different style, but, but they have a really good explanation. Um, something that I need to do... For, for my parish and just for the, the church in general, for our diocese and whatnot, is is I need to start um, streaming the offices um, at least three or four times a week uh, with 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 those psalms so that people can learn them. But yeah, the, I, I just learned straight from the from the Psalter itself. There's um there is an album from the King's Choir where they have the Psalms of David and it's not all the Psalms obviously but I have that and that's all Anglican chant really good stuff but um yeah it's 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 a, it's a need um you know folks that go up to Neshota House learn it really well I, I don't know how it is at other seminaries um but but I th I think that's that 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 is a need uh, for just in general it's it's a need <laughs> yeah absolutely well i look forward to, to seeing you do that you know when you have when you have time which is you know <laughs> no one has time but yeah all of us bivocational that, guys <laughs> exactly i feel your pain you know and all yeah. of you out there who are listening in we, we we both feel your pain father isaac and i do but yeah. uh but speaking of you know doing something like that i do want to commend the listeners to uh the video that you did uh on your parish youtube page uh, about the ACNA uh, morning office. It, it was fantastic. Uh, I loved it. You really did a great job on, on walking people through uh, actually doing the office as a service for the church. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I was um, I was heading out to vacation. I was on the train, and our uh, archdeacon for church planting sent me a text and says, hey, what'd you do? <laughs> I said, um, I'll talk to you when I get back in town. So that was, that was, uh, <laughs> that was, that was doing a, a favor uh, for 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 a friend and a and a, 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 one of my one of my ecclesiastical superiors, uh, but um, yeah, he I, I I promised to do one for evening prayer in a month or so, so another one will be coming out, and I'm, I'm I, I like doing that. It's another one of those things where I, I wish I had more time to do that sort of thing more regularly. Yeah, and uh, w one day, Lord willing, we will uh, we will get our. Um, our personal finances <laughs> such that we can be, we can live off of a, off of a bit simpler and make a, 
if not fully monovocational, at least a lot less bivocational. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I understand that. So, <laughs> but we'll pick up then with the next paragraph. We're on uh, then if you compare, as I recall, is that right? Yes. Okay, yeah, I'll pick this one up. Then if you compare Psalm 51 in the old and new translations, you find that the full extent of the nature of sin is diminished in the 1979 Psalter. The human condition of sin as inherited from others and then personally exercised is replaced in 1979 by a notion of individual freedom of choice as exercised only from one's mother womb. Regrettably, this diminution of the nature of sin harmonizes with the reduced doctrine of sin presented in the rest of the books. And I'll pause there because the next one goes into a next paragraph goes into a different thought. But you know, I think that's absolutely uh, spot on by Doctor Tune uh, when I've compared the Psalter and and how it's you know retranslated. I'll say uh, perhaps mistranslated, but I'll say retranslated the Psalm. It's much softer on the subject of sin and as I think I preached last Sunday how so many of the preachers have too have pointed out that sin is you know the word that people don't like to hear in churches despite the fact that if you're reading scripture you should be reading about sin all the time but with the 1979 they just one up to everybody and said we'll just take that word out here and there yeah and that's that's very unfortunate one of the um the things you'll hear um, criticisms against the classical books of common prayer is it's too penitential. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've even I've even talked to priests who have issues with the prayer of humble access. Um, yep. You know, e- even some folks that wear purple shirts having issues with that, and um, and that, that's a shame because I, I think I think it's just a real misunderstanding. And just not grasping Reformation era doctrine and some of those issues that were that were really at stake, because at least at least for me anyway, I, I have found that that penitential emphasis in the in the old Book of Common Prayer is so much more liberating because you know I I can, it forces me to be honest with with the evil that is in my heart and if and if any of us think we don't have evil in our hearts we're lying to ourselves yes yes you know i, I agree father and uh you know frankly that's like the, the name of this podcast is miserable offender which has been uh you know trimmed out of the, the modern prayer books and one of the things about that penitential language is that when i first started praying it I didn't feel like a miserable offender, you know. Right. I didn't feel like I was someone who needed to confess my sins as much as uh, the classic prayer books, prayer books, you know, require you to do so. And you know, you would go over the prayer of humble access, and, and it's easy to come to one of two opinions of, you know, we, we ought not to say this unless we really feel it, or the other opinion of, oh, you know, this is so groveling, you know, and it's so insincere, you know, it's just fake and. Yeah, we really just need to, to spruce it up and go a different direction in the theme of, of the common prayers. But I disagree, and I, I didn't always come to this opinion, but I slowly over time, by praying these prayers, came to disagree with those two philosophies because it's stating an objective fact that we are, in fact, sinners and that we are, in fact, you know, corrupt creatures that are... You know, if we truly believe our faith, are, are damned by the errors that we commit uh, by thought, word, or deed. 
And uh, if we don't come to that realization of our humanity, of where we really are, then we don't really understand why we are in need of a savior in the first place. So it's something that, that I agree with Dr. Toon here that it's a shame, or it's more than a shame, it's, it's downright insulting and, and uh, frankly it's scary, speaking of October, spooky, it's spooky, <laughs> that, uh, that a church would decide to, to take out this kind of language and let the, the laity and those who are inquiring of the faith be misled by not truly hearing that, in fact, the current state of affairs outside of salvation, that you are, in fact, a, a sinner, that uh, you are in a place of offense to the uh, the holy God, and that you're in need of repentance to come, to be able to be reconciled, be redeemed for your sins, <clears throat> excuse me, redeemed from your sins, and also to receive the new life, and that's the only way to receive true life. And if you don't get told that, at church of all places, then where are you going to hear that at, really? Yeah, I'm gonna. I, I'm reminded of the um, article number sixteen of sin after baptism, and, and I, I think this this hits the the truth we just need to wrestle with the, the whole way. Um, you know, and this is talking to Christians. This article. This is talking to those of us who have been saved. Um, it says, uh, not every deadly sin willingly committed after baptism is a sin against the Holy Ghost and unpardonable. Wherefore, the grant of repentance is not to be denied, such as fall into sin after baptism. After we have received the Holy Ghost, we may depart from grace given and fall into sin. And by the grace of God, we may arise again and amend our lives. And therefore, they are to be condemned, which say we can no more sin as long as they live here or deny the place of forgiveness such as truly repent. Actually, I was thinking about the previous article. Let me back to the very end of number 15 too. I'm talking about Christ alone without sin. The last sentence of that article is, but we all the rest, although baptized and born again in Christ, yet offend in many things. And if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We offend in many things. <laughs> and yeah, that's, it's, uh, ah, yeah, it's, it's, I think it's kind of, pastorally irresponsible maybe even abusive to minimize sin but that doesn't mean we you know at the same time that that that, that you know we i i can't you know the the lutherans like to talk about having law and gospel preaching and i think that's a really good thing that the lutherans have have, have contributed to um to to discussion um and I, 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 it might have been Jordan Cooper. I don't remember, but I think it was Jordan Cooper was talking about. You know, I can't ever think of a time when I, I would preach to the congregation law without gospel. He says I can think of a very few times when I might need to preach gospel without law. You know, and the example he gave was like in the wake of um, the nine eleven attacks. Yeah, but he said I can't think of any time when I would preach the law without the gospel and so yeah we really need both of those things and if we don't if we don't understand our sin if we don't have a concept of that we are miserable offenders we're not going to appreciate god's grace yes yes i agree father and uh and the thing that i'll point out i pointed this out to the to my congregation um either last sunday or a few sundays ago that law and gospel is inherently built into our liturgy. Um, yeah. And uh, right now we're, we're using, I say right now, we, we are, we have been using for quite some time, the, 
and you look at the standard text from the 2019 uh, prayer book, and, um, and and when you go through that that liturgy, I remind people that it's in the same pattern as the classic prayer book, mm-hmm. and that pattern is that you start out by um, reading the law of God, and you can either do the summary of the law, where Christ summarizes the entirety of the law into the uh, two commandments of love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, your mind, all your strength. And the second is like unto it, uh, love thy neighbor as thyself. Or you actually read the entire Decalogue. And, uh, and each time, you know, ask for the Lord's mercy to incline our hearts uh, to keep his commandments, to keep his will. And I point out that that's laying out the law of God. Yeah. And the next response is uh, the Kyrie eleison, you know, like, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy. Yeah. Our response to that law is crying out for gospel. Lord have mercy on us because we can't do it. And then we hear the good news of God as we approach closer to the, to the you hear the word of God through the lessons. You hear gospel when the gospel itself is brought to you. And then you hear the sermon where hopefully you hear an emphasis again of a law and gospel. And then before we enter into the second half of the liturgy of uh, preparing to receive and actually receiving uh, the Eucharist, once again, we confess our sins because we know the law condemns us. And then we get down on our knees and we receive the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, his body and his blood right there before our eyes for us to receive spiritually to nourish us and to give us a renewal of our lives to to once again um, pick ourselves up the lord picking us up not us picking ourselves up but the lord picking us up and once again putting his arms around us welcoming us into um, the family of god i mean it's a law and gospel dynamic that's even built within our, our liturgy and i think that's purposeful because Archbishop Cramner was influenced so much in his early period by uh, the Lutherans and what was happening um, in the continent in Germany. And it's interesting what, um, you know, adding adding the, the Decalogue as part of the, the liturgy was a 16th century innovation on, on, on Archbishop Cramner's part. Um, and I, I think it was adapted by some other folks, too. But, I mean, I, my understanding is he kind of he kind of did that to begin with. But um, what it replaced in the old Latin liturgies, if memory serves, was the litany of saints. Interesting. So rather than asking, you know, the saints to mediate on our behalf, um, we're getting right down to business. You know, (laughs) here's the problem and here's the solution. Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy. Absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's, that's neat stuff. Very neat stuff. And, and the comfortable words. How about the comfortable words? Oh, my goodness. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's just it's one of my favorite favorite prayers, you know. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I mean, there's there are times where when I'm reflecting on it, parts of it will, will get me, will kind of choke me up because yeah. the truth uh, of those words, the more I, I read them, hear them, and digest them, they become more and more true um, on a personal level, uh, for me at least. Indeed, indeed. Well, I guess it's uh, my turn, yeah? Yes. Okay, um, next paragraph. The lectionary which accompanies Book of Common Prayer 1979 has certain attractive features to it, but it also has some pernicious aspects. There is a selective dropping 
of those sections of scripture which obviously stand in definite opposition to the insights of the revised religion. This is particularly so with respect to the letters of Paul, where the modern mind judges him to be passing on rabbinic rather than specifically Christian teaching on the relation between the male and the female or the immorality of the practice of homosexuality, then that rabbinic teaching is left out. See, for example, the omission of parts of Romans 1, and of 1 Corinthians 11 and 14. To some people, the above examples of revision of doctrine may appear trivial and of little consequence, yet to those who are familiar with the history of Christian doctrine and spirituality, they do represent important changes or deviations, which will have evangelistic and pastoral repercussions. Therefore, if truth means anything at all, these changes must be made explicit by those who care for truth. Do you know which lectionary he, he's referring to there? The, um... That was my first question I was going to ask him. <laughs> <laughs> you, read my mind. Uh, you, you know, I, I don't, obviously, since I was going to ask you that same question. Uh, you know, I don't think either you or me ever uh, used the 79 prayer book. Um, so I, I am not familiar with which, which lectionary, you know. For some reason, I want to say that I've heard at some point that it was the daily uh, office lectionary, but there, there's someone listening to the podcast now shaking their head probably saying, no, no, it's not, but I, I really don't know to be honest with you. Yes. Interesting. I did not realize that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Are you talking about both the 28 original lectionary and the 1945 revision? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because uh, that's what I thought came into Anglicanism was with the 28, and the 45 lectionary definitely does that. And uh, you can actually download a copy of the original 1928 lectionary off of that uh, Justice, like uh, J-U-S-T-U-S dot Anglican website. It's a great resource for old prayer books from across the world, and uh, they've got the American 28 along with the original lectionary. So for years, uh, I used the 28 uh, prayer book for my daily offices, and I was using that 28 lectionary, which is a lot more robust, uh, a lot more closer to what Cramner envisioned. Although even it 
had already uh, trimmed away some of the readings. It was in the same order doing an annual reading of scripture, but it was still uh, striking out some aspects of it. So from what I've, I've heard from other friends of mine who, who are uh, American liturgical scholars, uh, they claim that the 1892 uh, lectionary was the best American one in the uh, in the old Protestant Episcopal Church. And I don't, and I don't think they had switched to using the church year by then. I think that was new for 28, if if, if memory serves. That's correct. Yeah, yeah. I, I had a guy on they, Twitter asking me, you know, is there yeah. is there a way to not um, chop up? the scriptures and maintain a daily office lectionary tied to the church year and unfortunately the answer is just not really yeah because yeah. what do you, what do you do for those last couple weeks of epiphany tide or trinity tide when things just change what do you put in those days that you know you're only going to see once every few years absolutely and it's, it's unfortunate and I, but it's just the way it is it is yeah you know it's one of those like you, you've just got to you know not really pick your battles, but make a choice on which way you're gonna you're gonna do it. Are you gonna go with the church year? Are you gonna go with, with reading the scriptures all the way through? And uh, my my preference is it can be beautiful to do the church year of like seeing things tied together on the daily uh, offices like that. But mm-hmm. frankly, I, I agree more with what Cramner did originally on making it a an annual a yearly reading through scripture. So that way, you're you're essentially digesting a one-year reading plan of the scriptures. You're uh, if you stick with the old way of reading the Psalms, you're getting it twelve times in a year because yep. you're reading through the Psalms every single month. And um, for anyone who's ever tried to find a one-year reading plan, I mean, open up a prayer book. You've got one basically right there. And if you notice that, you know, why does it say you know read, you know. Genesis 42, 1 through 17, and then it skips a few verses and picks back up at verse like 23. Well, just keep reading. Just read those verses. Right, you know, it's right. not like someone's going to pop up and chastise you. You're like, you read too many verses. <laughs> just, just read them. <laughs> it's quite all right. And uh, as a matter of fact, if memory serves, uh, I think the rubrics in the new 2019 uh, ACNA prayer book even says that uh, you can read other scripture or additional scripture uh, as the... Uh, the minister um, sees appropriate um, and so I mean if, if for some reason like the lectionary there cuts off parts of a chapter you know just read the rest of it uh, especially if you're laity you know you're not doing this in a service in a church service you're just doing this uh, at home you know just use it as a plan to read through scripture and if uh, for some reason the lectionary calls for cutting out like 10 verses in the middle of a chapter it's more of a problem to try to figure out where do I stop it and then pick back up. Right. Just read, read through the chapter, you know, um, and enjoy knocking out entire books of the Bible uh, within a month. I just opened up the daily office from the 2019 prayer book, and let's see, you knock out Genesis within two months. Yeah. Yeah. If you started uh, January of, of 2020, and uh, and your, this is your news, your, your New Year's resolution. And you picked it up on January 1, 2020. You'll start with Genesis 1, obviously. Read that first chapter. You will finish by February 20th, the entire book of Genesis, just by doing morning prayer. And in the meantime, if you're doing all the lessons for morning prayer, you'd also finish the Gospel of John within the first month, within January. You would, well, within January to February 10th. Then you'd read parts of Luke 
start up Matthew. And then with evening prayer, you would have read... This is interesting. They start out with Galatians, one chapter. And then... Uh, oh, okay, that's the second lesson also. Anyway, you'd finish up with... Uh, by reading the letter to Galatians, uh, Thessalonians, uh, both letters to the Thessalonians, 1 Corinthians, and 2 Corinthians, you'd be going through uh, Romans, and you'd finish up Jeremiah, starting uh, Lamentations. That's just the first two months. If you're doing morning and evening prayer, uh, like a rock star, much mm -hmm. less you'd already read uh, the Psalter twice by doing January and February. And if you're more of the, the type of, like, I need a slow way to to get started, well, they give you a 60-day Psalter, which is awesome. Uh, you would have read through the entire Psalter within those first two months by doing it that route. And um, you could, you know, as laity, just choose to do um, just the first and second lesson for one of the offices. But all this to, to say, you know, just, just take up and read, you know. Um, and get started. Don't make it a New Year's resolution. I feel like if you ever do that, you're just you're making yourself ready to, to fail. Plus, the Word of God, you know, waits on no man. So go ahead and pick it up and and read it and start the habit. If you're gonna do it as a New Year's resolution, do it as a church New Year's resolution because the New Year starts on Advent one. <laughs> so, <laughs> after you get done being stuffed by uh, all the turkey on uh, December one, pick it up and, and start going through the daily office. And and, and uh, the the ACNA's 2019 daily office lectionary is really good. Yes, um, it is. Be, because it does have that flexibility for either being a one or two year lectionary, mm -hmm. um, monthly or or um, bi monthly Psalter, and and I do believe it it gives you some options for if you need to abbreviate the less some of those longer lessons you can. Um, you know, and that that is when it, when it comes to the public offices of the church. You know, doing you know choral even song or something. You know, unless you have a good, a really good reader, um, it can get tedious. <laughs> you know, at times, which which it probably shouldn't. That probably is, is yep. more of an indictment on us than on than on them. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it's true. But, <laughs> but yeah, but the twenty nineteen really is. It's it's better than just about any of the daily offices office lectures yes. that came before, in, in my opinion. And that's where I like that flexibility, and that's where it's kind of a, a people's prayer book of where uh, the people can take it and uh, and make a not make a plan, but use one of those provided plans to their benefit, especially for those who have young families, you know, like ourselves, and uh, and making sure that the, the scripture reading you're not just doing it just to do it, but you're also tailoring it to your audience there. But uh, for personal devotion, I recommend. You know, if you've got young children, then, you know, do what works to make it work uh, for your family because the reading of Scripture is, is important. Uh, it's the way you're teaching the gospel and, and tr passing on that deposit of the faith once delivered to the saints. But uh, for those of us who are clergy, now obviously I'm no man's bishop. I'm just a, a deacon down here. But uh, I still, you know, recommend to my uh, brothers who are being developed in the faith uh, to, to do the entirety of the of the office just because it forms you so much and when you miss a day you actually you said this uh, Canon Isaac on your your video about doing the daily office that if you you miss a day don't try to go and backtrack is the worst thing you can do <laughs> this is this is words of experience for myself when I was a layman and I was like oh man you know 
I was lazy for a couple of days. I didn't do the offices. I'm going to go backtrack. And if I didn't do the offices for a while, it got worse and worse. And then it became almost a law unto itself where, yeah. I mean, easily the evil one was just using it to batter me down. On You should just give up and not do it. And, I think the uh, same thing happened to Luther as a monk. He would miss a few yeah. days and then spend hours and hours trying to catch up on his prayers. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that, I, then I can really sympathize with that. Like, when I, the more I read about Luther's life, the more I'm like, I would have been that annoying. <laughs> of like, I, I've surely have forgotten or not confessed something, so I got to go back to that confessor. And there's, I've heard the story from a few Lutheran pastors that his confessor would see him coming back, and he'd just turn around and walk away. <laughs> the direction, <laughs> just like. I can't, I can't handle this guy anymore. <laughs> but uh, I respect that. And uh, but, but also, yeah. I mean, I, to to those who are learning the office or wanting to do the offices, just just take up and go with it. You know, you're gonna miss a few days. Just pick it up and go forward uh, to the clergy. You know, uh, in the house. You know, take up. You know, what the sixty-two and the uh, the classic prayer books called us to do. Although the American experience, as I recall, even the seventeen eighty-nine didn't uh, require in its rubrics um, that the clergy uh, do the daily offices. Yeah. It might have been in like the canons perhaps, but it wasn't in the American Prayer Book, which is a departure from the 62, which is unfortunate. But uh, I always have my 62 Prayer Book sitting next to me. It's the ACA uh, Canons and Constitution looked to it as uh, the standard for worship. And so when I'm trying to understand uh, the context of the rubrics of the 2019 i'll look to the 1662 and the 2019 even says that uh, i forgot how it's worded but it says like like typically or historically or generally something of that nature of that the clergy uh perform the daily offices it didn't word it in a way where it's mandated but it kind of takes that step back towards hey the classic way of being anglican is that the clergy are expected to do these daily offices not because we're holier than anyone else, but it's a way of forming ourselves who are leading our flocks to be formed by the word of God so that in theory we may live out the word of God uh, and truly be uh, good stewards of the flock um, the Lord has provided us to take care of. And it takes a while to build to build up the discipline. Um, I remember Gerald Bray um, speaking of Anglican and Beeson Divinity School. Yeah. Um, yeah. He, 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 I remember a talk that he gave and he said that it took him about eight years as a clergyman for it to become a habit. And that, that, and the reason, and for those eight years, he basically was doing it because he was, you know, his superiors <laughs> were forcing him to do it with them. Hmm. And, but, but now if he doesn't do it, you know, it just does, it just, it's just, the day goes terribly exactly yeah i, I completely agree with that that it, when i miss an office like i pay for it and i can't explain why you know it's, it's not like oh you just feel some guilt you know you know you christians no, no it's, it's not that you know i mean there's a little aspect of that well, i should have done it you know like i'm supposed to be doing it but no it's like the day is off and i don't have myself centered on god uh luther's we, we, sp we spoke of luther even in his short catechism he talks about starting the day off by making the sign of the cross. Yeah. And he has, in that short catechism, examples of a very shortened version of doing a morning prayer and an evening prayer 
to have yourself rooted and focused on the discipline of when you start the day, when you come back to life to a certain extent, when you rise up from the dead of sleep, that your focus is on living your life to the Lord. And then when you uh, entrust yourself back to the sleep, to back to death, you know, uh, and rest, that you're ending that day giving thanks to God uh, for what he has done. Um, so that, that's certainly, that's the ideal. And, uh, I, you know, I'm the first one to admit that I'm, you know, never perfect on my uh, daily offices and, and making sure that everything is done uh, perfectly. But uh, that is the, the weekly goal is yeah. to be formed and to be disciplined by it because at the end of the day you know we're we're all men under authority uh, not only those of us who wear collars but but even the laity that we're all called uh, by the lord to be formed uh by him and he speaks to us daily through his written word so what better way to to find a rule to be disciplined by to become better disciples than using the ancient tradition of uh the daily offices um it's just a great way to really be rounded and to be formed uh, into the faith. Yep, and and yeah, and I, I'm 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 the same. I'm I'm not quite there yet. I'm I'm not at where Gerald Bray is, and um, I, I definitely can attest to something being off if I don't start with morning prayer. And it's kind of a general grumpiness, you know. It's it's almost like I didn't have my cup my cups of coffee. <laughs> <laughs> It's yes, a good way of yeah. describing it, actually. I agree with you on that. <laughs> I have real troubles getting evening prayer in regularly. Um, you know, it's a lot easier to start the day for me than to end it. That's always been the case for me. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, I agree with you there. You know, it's something about uh, probably the family life that we both have young children that you never uh, have necessarily a, a set time when you can sit down and do that office. And uh, what I've tried to do to try to, to have it accomplished is to do a, a truncated version of evening prayer uh, with my kids. Yeah. And then the aspects that I've left out, try to uh, go back and do those so that I'm having a more complete office. But it's, it's never perfect. It's it's always um, a discipline that, that I'm working on. And then and also to, con to, to confess to you and to everybody else, you know, whoever listens to this, that, <laughs> um, you know, when I travel uh, for work, uh, it makes it more difficult because then yes. I don't have my set place, my set time, you know, like all that is is kind of, uh, you know, thrown around. And uh, it's definitely like not having my cup of coffee. So yeah. <laughs> I like that description. <laughs> Something's just not right when I don't, don't get it done. So absolutely well shall we uh put a put a bookmark here um at the end we'll we'll pick up next time with the old but excellent section that sounds great uh, it was a pleasure uh ken and isaac of doing this one with you you know we, we missed uh jesse certainly and we hope to have the uh three musketeers all together at some point <laughs> <laughs> That's our New Year's resolution. Wait, maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be our church New Year's resolution. Just there we go. Just move it up, you know, by a month to try to get it done. <laughs> so, that sounds good. Well, it's great as always, uh, Ken and Isaac. I hope that uh, you and yours have a great rest of your week. And uh, thank you, listeners, for joining in again with the Miserable Offenders podcast. Until next time. See you all later. Bye-bye. It was the spirit of our forefathers that 
built that grand building, I believe that that spirit is with us still and will help us to, to rebuild it one day when we've served and suffered a while, a little longer. Build it again to the, to the glory of, of Jesus Christ. Miserable Offenders is a production of the North American Anglican. Learn more at n-o-r-t-h-a-m-anglican.com.